Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Mike T. Nelson. On this episode, Mike and I discuss metabolic flexibility. Guys, this was a great conversation with Mike, and I hope you really enjoy it. Mr. Mike T. Nelson, thank you so much for making time today. I really, really do appreciate it. Just for the listeners, Mike, who may not be too familiar who we are, which as I, as I, like my standards are opening line for podcasts, which I would imagine isn't too many people. Uh, just, <laughs> just fill us in on the background. Yeah, so the semi-short background is I spent a whole bunch of time in college, semi-learning a bunch of stuff. I did a Bachelor of Arts as an undergrad, natural science. Chemistry minor, minor in math, decided to go into engineering, so spent two years up at Michigan Tech doing that. Then went to graduate school there for a master's in mechanical engineering, biomechanics. But I actually did research because I couldn't get funded through that area. So I did all my work in what was actually called uh, solid mechanics, which I tell people is just the advanced study of how shit breaks. You know, so I wanted to do internal bone fixation and stuff like that. Couldn't get any funding went over to the center for biomedical engineering. Like, Hey, we got money for you. I'm like, Oh, perfect. What am I doing? They're like uh, heat transfer, like heat transfer. I didn't take any heat transfer classes. That's okay. Here's thermo two. Here's a heat transfer book. You're doing conduction heat transfer in January. You got one month to go teach yourself. I'm like, this is a joke, right? He's like, no. I'm like, Oh man. So I ended up doing a, a computer generated model of a monkey head in front of a microwave transmitter. So you literally have this big transmitter and you point it at a monkey and they wanted to validate this via computer simulation so that they could then basically take the transmitter and point it at people. Yeah, yeah. But at the time they said, ah, you know, this is, this is for a collision avoidance systems on cars. I'm like, well, why does Brooks Air Force Base in Texas care about this? And then five years later it was uh, declassified. My advisor sent me this little thing that says, military declassifies rig gun. And he goes, yeah, that was your project. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so help me make a ray gun. That's fun. Um, got done with that. I worked for a medical technology company for about 10 years in uh, pacemaker, defibrillator, kind of leads design, which was good. I liked it. But I was spending all my free time just going to you know, fitness and physiology conferences for fun. Just annoying trainers by sitting in the back asking them if they read certain studies. And then they would say no and then i'd ask him like well what are you doing here like well we came here to learn science we don't actually read research like you don't that's so weird why why not (laughs) um and then did was it five years in the phd program for biomedical engineering and dropped out of that because i got tired of doing math and i knew i was screwed when there was a class i had to take on mris and the first day the professor walks in and he goes all right we're going to now derive all the equations used in MRIs. I'm thinking, he's got to be joking. And he starts writing all this math on the board. Everyone in class is just feverishly writing this down. And I'm in there with like PhDs in physics and, you know, mathematics. And so I poke the guy next to me. I'm like, do you even know what he's writing on the board? And he goes, no. And just starts frantically <laughs> writing stuff down. So I'm like, I think I'm out of here. So I dropped out of there. In fall, went to exercise physiology, which of course is a different program, so you gotta start from ground zero again. And the, the first day my advisor sit, comes in, he goes, hey, I got two new projects. One's on heart rate variability, one's on metabolic flexibility. 
And he looks around the table and he points at me and goes, you, math boy, whatever your name is, these are your projects. Math so that boy. was 12 years ago or so. So that's how I got into heart rate variability and metabolic flexibility. Uh, took me seven years to finish that program. So I was, I did almost 18 years of college full-time, which I would not recommend to anyone to do. How were you funding and, yourself? Oh man. So the first eight years I was $50,000 in debt, which I mean, now to like people who hear that, they're like, oh, that's just one year of college. I'm like, yeah. no, this is like money from 1999. I mean, this is a lot more than, than now. So I lived in my parents' basement. I moved back in with them and literally started taking every red cent that I made from working at the, the biotech company. And I was driving an hour and 10 minutes each way. And I, after about a year of that, I moved out because it was just, just too much. And then when I went back again, I just said, okay, I'll take the money that I've made from working at the med tech company and I use that to pay for it. And then when I did my PhD, I got funding, um, which is basically, hey, you know, work as our indentured slave for, you know, three and a half, four years in the lab and we'll waive your tuition and give you $800 a month, I think is what I got, <laughs> which is not much. So he was yelling at me all the time. He's like, you got to quit your other job. You can't be working part-time somewhere else. And I'm like, yeah, I would never recommend this to anyone, but I need health insurance and I just got married and $800 will not even make my house payment a month. So <laughs> we'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, so just kind of worked all the way, way through doing it. I started training people probably like 12 years ago. So I used some of that to kind of augment uh, educational costs too. So it's, I made it. Um, I got through my PhD without having to, to take out another loan, which was good, but I almost died in the process. So I don't know if it was really the best thing ever. <laughs> when is the day coming where America's just going to go to fucking war over all these college fees? Like it's absolutely, oh, it's, bad. it's, it's absolutely it's way worse now. Scandalous. Oh, I've heard the fees. They're ridiculous. Parents fucking remortgaging their houses and all. It's absolutely, yeah. what is going on there, man? It's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It's and even when I was t teaching, I taught for a little while at St. Thomas in Minnesota. It's just super nice private uh, college. I mean, amazing labs. I loved all the people there. It was great. But I'm sitting there teaching, you know, exercise phys and I was teaching biomechanics and about half the students are like super into it. They're all asking questions or, you know, they're real down with it. About half are just like annoyed that I'm even standing in front of them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking you're paying like almost 40 to 50 grand a year to be here like why are you not interested and then i realized that you know for those students most of the time their parents were paying for it and they just thought it was the thing they're supposed to do and i'm like oh my god you know like one hundred sixty thousand dollars for johnny to get a four-year undergrad degree who he doesn't even really seem to be interested in it so it was mind-blowing <laughs> like i'm just uh like being from ireland like and growing up like I'd say this would be the same for my friends too. We just had absolutely no clue to the whole sort of college culture in America. Cause like, oh, sure. you know, it's different. yeah. Like, cause like, you'd be watching like an old, like, you know, fucking not a, not a sitcom, but you'd be watching like a, a series or an American series on TV. And like, you know, there's always like there's certain like episodes where like the kid would come home and say, mom, dad, I want to leave college. And like, it'd be this big, huge like deal. And like we'd always be going, why is it such a big deal for kids to be gone? <laughs> and then like then like when you find out, oh, they have to pay for college in America. Oh, that's why. Because <laughs> yeah, we in Ireland you get your first degree covered by the government. Like so, you right. you, you have to pay like I think three grand or something in fees, but like you don't pay anything to the extent that you guys do. 
but it's a whole system. Like it's meant to put you in debt so you to pay back for ages. Like sure, did Obama only pay back his fucking all his college fees while he was in the White House or something ridiculous like that? It's absolutely madness. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, I know people who have uh, PhDs now who are older than me, and I'm 44, who are still trying to pay off their graduate work. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> They got you by the balls. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I don't think the system's gonna last the way it is. It, it just, it just can't. So no. Well, listen, we all know nothing's gonna last forever. I mean, the sun is gonna explode one day, but that's many billions of years away. But nothing is gonna yeah. last forever. We'll be long gone by then, sir. Unless, right. Unless like Musk gets us off the planet, or else someone, someone comes up with life extension longevity stuff in the next fifty years. Yeah. Um, even though that that shit is going down now as as we speak, so topic for today is metabolic flexibility you recently were on sigma nutrition with my my good friend danny lennon who's, yes who's a absolutely just sound human being and if anyone, oh he's awesome oh he's amazing if anyone listening does not listen to sigma nutrition you should it'll be linked up in the show notes it's one of the best podcasts out there just the the, the quality of information is just immense um so yeah i want you to talk about metabolic flexibility because i've never had a chance to talk to you talk to you about this topic and i have a few questions around it but um, before we start off with that, Mike, just before you've given us your background and just before we get into this topic, I like to always ask guests just about their influences. So before we get into the topic, could you just tell, tell us and myself and the listeners who have been your biggest influences, both professionally and personally? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I would say if I think back on like who is probably early on, I mean, now it's it's crazy to me. Like when I started reading like uh, testosterone uh, nation, T nation, mm-hmm. probably back when they just started, you know? So I remember getting Charles Poliquin's book, the Poliquin principles. And I'm like, Oh my God, there's something besides three by 10. No one ever told me this. How is this possible? I did not know this. And then you get into like Bill Starr's five by five and then you research like three by 10, you realize like Delorme was talking about that stuff like 70 years ago, yeah, yeah. you know, and that was revolutionary at that point. Um, so kind of some of the early authors there, I mean, definitely uh, Dr. John Berardi, uh, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, uh, even Chad Waterbury was like one of the first seminars I went to at Charles Staley's when he was just going back to do some uh, neurophysiology stuff. Uh, you know, Eric Cressy, Mike Robertson, you know, kind of all those guys, I was reading their stuff at the time. And I remember working in the med tech company, printing them out. Cause I think they only came out for a while, like on Fridays or they only came out like one a day or something like that and printing them out and taking my lunch and just sitting down and, you know, analyzing all the articles. And even beyond that, to go to a seminar in LA, you know, to meet John and to meet Eric and all these guys. And they're just super nice, just, you know, wonderful, you know, helpful people. And even now just, you know, fast forward to having, been a presenter with, you know, some of them at the similar, you know, topics. And I was at Swiss two years ago and went out to dinner with, you know, John and JL and a bunch of other guys. And it's, I'm like, I'm like, I think I got to pinch myself. This is just like crazy. And, you know, now being in the industry that, you know, you can like look at your phone and go, ah, I'm just going to call Lonnie just texted me this morning. He's got a question, you know, because the industry from people looking from the outside, it's not that big. You know, people think that it's this massive thing, but, and you know, like everybody kind of knows everyone else. So there's not that big of a separation. Mm. Um, so I think all those guys, especially with their background and what they were doing to try to make it uh, practical, 
you could do an advanced degree and you could make it practical. I thought that was pretty eye-opening because they're some of the first people to really, I think, do that. We had a lot of strength coaches, which was very useful. Um, but now I know a lot of people who email me or like, yeah, you know, I think about doing a, a master's or a PhD, but I don't want to work in academia. Like, wow, that was, that was like pure heresy 15 years ago, you know, where now it's actually becoming, you know, an, an option to do so. Tell me, this is just a selfless question. So like, yeah. you, you seem to have like your hand in a, in a lot of different pots. So I originally heard from you from Z Health. And yes. then on Danny's podcast, you said now that you're with the Carrick Institute. And I actually have a few of their yeah. education materials, which are phenomenal. Because oh, uh, yeah, like, I, I love just studying neurology and neuroscience. So yes. uh, their um, resources are savage. I know you're with, uh, you're with RPR. Are you with RPR too? I teach for them, yes. Yeah, I teach level one and level two. So just so. T- t- kind of walk us, walk us through, through the laugh on you there. Walk us through how you got involved with these organizations because these are, these are top quality people in terms of their, their um, information. Yeah. With Z Health, what happened was I started training people, just, you know, training buddies and stuff in like, like the late 90s, right? So I went through the stage of like, hey, I'll write your program. I know what I'm doing, which means I didn't know dickhole. I didn't know anything. But I thought I knew stuff. You know, and so you give them the program and it's free and they never do it and fast forward that for three years and doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And eventually I got like my first paying client in like the early 2000s and I'm working with them and I'm like, God, this guy moves horribly. Like I tell him to squat. He doesn't even know how to squat, which, you know, now I go, well, of course, that's why he hired me, dumbass, you know, and around that time, uh, a buddy of mine I knew, he's like, yeah, there's this thing called Z Health. Uh, Dr. Cobb's going to be in your area. Just, just go check it out. It's crazy stuff. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I go to it and he was just doing kind of one-off assessments. And so I dragged my client with, I'm like, just come with me. I'll pay, I'll pay for your session. I don't care. I, I want to see if this works and trust me, you need some help. I can't help you. I don't know what's going on. So he does the session there and I was like, wow, this is pretty crazy. And uh, the other person they're coordinating with them is like, well, we have a certification if you want to learn how to do this. I'm like, how much is it? I want to say at the time, I think it was like 2,800 or three grand. It was, it was pretty spendy. Wow. Was that for like, how many days? It was for, at that time, I think it was four, if yeah. I remember right. Okay. Um, and I'm like, all right, here's my credit card. I guess I'm going to Arizona to figure out if this thing works or not. And that was our phase. So I then did R phase, I phase, S phase, T phase, 9S. Um, and then I ended up going through and did actually their first master trainer certification, which was just this hellacious six-day eval that they did. And I got through all of that and it was super interesting. I mean, a lot of really great neurology stuff. And at the end, I was like, ah, I don't really know if I want to teach for them just because of some business stuff. And in my opinion, how the culture of other people were becoming, it was, it was becoming more of let's impress the other people in the room by doing the weirdest shit we can do than what are the basics and what is it based on? So I ended up kind of leaving at that point. And it turns out that I did some PRI after that. So I had found some PRI stuff before and I said, eh, I'm just going to go do some PRI stuff. So I harassed Ron for three to four years. I went to the first PRI vision class. So I had never taken any PRI. I'm obviously not a physical therapist, but I'm like, I have some of my own vision issues that I found out about through Z Health through space. And I remember reading Pat Davidson stuff around the time. I'm like, who is this Pat Davidson guy? why the hell did he write like 10 pages on the deadlift? 
wow, that's amazing. I got to follow this guy. So I heard that he was going to the vision course uh, through PRI. And so for my birthday, I'm like, I'm just going to sign up. So I emailed PRI. I said, hey, I haven't taken any of the prereqs. Here's my background. Can I just pay you and show up for this class? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll let you in. I'm like, okay, cool. So I sat like right in front of Pat. And so I started taking some PRI classes after that. And then it turns out that a buddy of mine I had met through Z Health and also Kenneth J. I called him probably like five years ago now. I was like, hey, why don't we just do our own seminar? Like we know some stuff, you know, everyone else is just doing their own seminar. And he's like, oh, okay. And he had just signed on uh, Freddie's at the Kerrig Institute. And so he's like, well, what if we do this as a human performance program through the Kerrig Institute? I'm like, that sounds cool. So fast forward uh, four and a half years after that point, I've been a faculty there now for a year and a half, two years, mm. uh, working with Dr. Kenneth J and Freddy's Garcia, a couple other guys, Dr. Kerrig himself, to actually create a 300 credit hour human performance program, literally from like the ground up. So if we make a program all on human performance and we make it research-based and application-based, what does that look like? Um, so we just had the first module for that a couple of weeks ago in Florida. So I basically met him through uh, Z Health, and you know, obviously having an advanced you know degree and all that kind of stuff is is helpful too. And then the RPR stuff was I've known Cal Dietz for Christ, probably twelve years now. So when I was at the University of Minnesota doing my PhD, uh, he was just around the corner in Mariucci is is where he was training and coaching and everything. So he would come down and I'd go over there and harass him during my lunch break and ask him about random stuff. And he'd be like, oh yeah, you know, we tested that once. We took the force plate here and we had the session group A and session group B. And it was always super fascinating that he actually had tested stuff. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years. So he comes by, I think it was probably three years ago. And he's like, hey, I got this guy, Doug Heal. I'm, I'm flying him in from South Africa. He's doing a certification this June. He's like, you got to go to it, man. You got to go. I said, well, what, Cal, what is this all about? I don't know this Doug Heal guy. He's like, crazy shit, man, crazy shit. I'm like, this is your sales speech. Did you want me to drop two grand with the guy just because it's some crazy stuff? He's like, yes. Okay, cool. Here's your two grand. <laughs> I'm like, I guess I'll, I'll find out. So we go to uh, Paleo FX that year in the end of April. And I'm sitting at the speaker dinner with Cal, who's presenting there also. I'm like, hey, I'm like, what's this? RPR stuff or this at the time was called be activated through Doug Heal. I, I don't know anything about it. I've been so busy. I haven't even looked at anything yet, but I guess I'm paying you two grand to learn from this guy. He's like, Oh man, stand up, stand up. So, you know, Cal's not a small fellow. And so we're standing, he puts his arm around me and gives me this like side noogie of death. And I'm just like screaming. This is at like the speaker dinner and everyone stops and turns around and sees Cal with his arm around me, like, you know, hit me in the side. And I'm like, I said, wow, that really hurts. He's like, crazy shit, man, crazy shit. I'm like, Cal, you haven't answered a single question about anything that I've asked you about. He's like, oh, man, you'll love it. You'll love it. So that was level one and level two that Doug did as Be Activated. And then after that, then uh, Cal basically got a license and JL and Chris uh, Corfus to teach some of Doug's material as RPR, but to uh, coaches, and then Doug will basically teach the medical model. So I just started doing that, went to the level two that Doug taught and just started working on people and then eventually just ended up 
teaching form. <laughs> it was uh, Doug Hugh was in, was in Dublin twice this year. Actually, I was uh, I missed both of them, so I did. But uh, Cal Dietz is a mad bastard, isn't he? Oh yeah, and I've known Cal for like I said, twelve years, and he's. I mean, he's just awesome. Like every time you you talk to Cal, it's like something new, something crazy. And he's one of the few people who like would say, "Yes, you need to take the cert and pay two grand." And I don't even know what I'm doing. And I'm like, "Okay, cool, I'm there." <laughs> you know, I'm like, "Sir, I'm in." <laughs> How the hell did you manage to pay for those Z Hell courses when you were in college? Were you, like, where was that money coming from? You were just you just said yeah. Starting. So what I did was is I took all the money from the first five years of training and I just reinvested it in continuing ed. So, I mean, I was paying, you know, 20, 30 grand a year for a while just in continuing ed. If I add up, you know, plane flights and all that other kind of stuff. Um, because I had another job where I was working at a med tech company that covered my basic expenses. Mm. So I'm like, I can get by on that. You know, my, I, you know, my basic expenses are paid for. So I said, okay, if I, whatever I get from training, I'll just start reinvesting that into uh, education and yeah, some of it was on a credit card and some of it didn't get paid back for <laughs> several months and stuff. But were you, were, yeah. you mar- were you married at this time? Were you? No, no, I didn't get married till I was one third of the way through my PhD program, I was just wondering. which is what I would never recommend anyone. Um, but yeah. Cause Dietz, Cal Dietz tells the story of like when he bought the Omega way for the first time, he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, 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 was, that was, that was, that was interesting to tell the wife. So yeah. uh, there's a bill for 25 grand on our credit card. He's like, yeah, I bought this machine. And then like, he said like he bought it and he still didn't really know what it done. And she was like, so what is it? And he goes, I actually don't really know. And she's like, yeah, what are you doing, man? And if you know Cal, that story makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, I, I just, I just heard stories, but, uh, I kind of laughed at myself there as well. When you were like, with Kenneth J, she's like, let's just make up our own course. Cause I was like, well, that's what we did. That is, that, but like in one way, like I'm a bit like, that's fucking dreadful. Like, imagine if doctors turn around and said, let's just make up a course. Yeah. <laughs> make up a course, like, just make up random stuff. People will come pay. It would be great. But the amount of people, the amount of, like, just random certifications and shit that is just completely made up with no science behind it and people just lashing out money to it is just like, oh, oh my it's God. insane. And, and that's why we wanted to do it through the Carrick course. And then one of the requirements was that, you know, we sat down with Dr. Carrick and it's like, okay, so we actually have to have all the backup you know, documentation on all of it, you know, so what is it based on, right? Because how I've envisioned it is anyone could drop into the course and be like, okay, that's kind of cool, but what's that based on? Okay, here's the literature that it's based on. Here's the actual study. And here's what was actually pulled out of it. Because I think without a research background, I did that with the Flex Diet Cert too. I think I've got, God, I don't know, well over 200 references, I think, in it. Because I wanted people to be like, hey, I'm not so sure I disagree or agree with this point. But here's what it's based on. So everything is, goes back to an actual reference, mm. which I think a lot of people now, like, as you know, in fitness, it's like I could make whatever course I want tomorrow, say it's a certification. I don't have to base it on anything. I could make all of it up if I wanted to. And, you know, no one's going to say yay or nay to that. You know, that's the pro and the con of just how everything operates. It allows a lot of freedom. It allows a lot of freedom to almost everyone, which uh, that's got a big downside. How do you decide nowadays on what continuing education you want to do? So basically, how do you filter? Oh, uh, so it has to come. Has, has to come as a recommendation, I suppose. 
Yeah. So what I've been trying to do now is I'm like trying to look at blocks of what I want to do in terms of years. Mm. So next year I'm going to take all the, the pain reset courses through the Carrig course, through the Carrig Institute. That's probably about five of them. Uh, Cause I know the guy's teaching and I think it's a good intro to look at it from the neurology lens, but a little bit different. And then I'll probably start like an LMT course because Minnesota is one of the rare, I think six states in the U S where hands-on work is not regulated at the state level. So Great. technically I can do, you know, RPR or hands-on work on an individual. RPR is generally done on yourself. Um, but I can do that. And I've done that for three years now. I don't can, need any. Can you, join, can you join needle there? Not yeah, Technically no, because uh, bloods are involved, but there's a way to get around it a little bit if you use a dolphin microcurrent device or MPS, <laughs> which I have. Um, you can basically do electric acupuncture because the two devices send electricity from one to the other one. And it's an FDA cleared over the counter device because they don't break the skin. So there's no bloods. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that'd be a way around it. Do, do they classify dry needling as a blood based therapy? Because like, that's the whole point of it is that like, there isn't any blood involved. Because I'm a dry needleist, and like, uh, like technically, like when I was getting qualified, like you know, you'd have to have your gloves and your alcohol wipes. But like they were saying to us, like they're like, you actually technically don't have to have a glove on because it's it's there's no blood, like there should be no blood involved with dry needling. Yeah. Hence, hence why it's called dry needling. Like, I think it's because of, and I'd have to double check the regulation again. I think it's because anytime there's a potential for blood because a needle yeah, is, is poking there is, through yeah. the skin. There is. So some, that, yeah, because sometimes, yeah, sometimes blood can come out. Like if you don't take the needle out right or, or whatever, sometimes just like the fucking connective tissue grips the needle and it just sometimes come out right. Um, but now I'm just wondering that. Uh, listen, there's loads of other questions I, I could ask you, but I, I do want to get into metabolic flexibility. Yeah. So starting off with that, Mike, how did you, like I know you kind of said there, one of the PHA words, like, right, you have heart variability and metabolic flexibility. You, Matt boy, you're going to do this. So is, yeah. is, that, is that literally how you got into it or was there any interest yeah. before that? I had, I know nothing about either one. I had heard about Omega Wave and I heard that they used HRV and I went out to ACSM at one point and bought uh, Landon Evans a very expensive steak dinner to try to get him to spill his guts about HRV and uh, Landon was awesome, super awesome guy, mm, mm. super helpful but basically he's like, eh, I'm under contract, I can't say anything or they'll kill me, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. I actually um, only had Val on the podcast there like two weeks ago. Oh, nice. I'll listen to that one. Yeah, and it was actually, he, he they actually reached out to me. His, um, is it, uh, Mikhail is his, is his PA's assistant, and he was like, do you want to, so, yeah. he just basically goes, do you want to follow the podcast? And I was like, all right. And we just had a great chat. Like, he has, he's such a cool Russian accent, man. Oh, yeah. And if you got a cool Russian accent, you can sell everything. And oh, I don't yeah. mean that with any disrespect at all. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> so go on, yeah. So you, yeah. you, heard, it, you, you so, heard it about the Omega Wave? Yeah, so I heard about HRV, and then metabolic flexibility, that was the first time I had heard about it. Because I'm like, what? And at first, I, I asked the other guy I was working with on the project. Um, he was a, basically an adjunct there at the university. And it was kind of his project. And he worked under my advisor. But I just reported to my advisor. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, what? It, of course, your body's using two fuels. Like, what, what, there's, no, there's no point to any of this. And he's like, well, what if I told you that maybe that changes? I'm like, oh. He's like, look up, you know, type two diabetics. I'm like, okay. So I do a bunch of research on that. And then I'm like, well, 
well, what doesn't everyone just use fat while at rest? He's like, well, maybe you should look that up. I'm like, oh, I, I got it. So I looked that up and I'm like, oh, oh, they don't. It's very variable. Oh, oh, so all this stuff is relatively plastic. It's not the crossover effect. Like, so you look at Brooks and Mercier, right? Mid 1990s crossover effect. They sell it as, well, this is just the way it is. Everyone functions this way. Yeah. All right, we're done. Between 50 and, you, and 70% of VO2 max yeah. the crossover. And then you start finding all the exceptions to that. And their study is valid, right? Because the study is an average of what they were actually looking at. So it was very novel at that point, but they never looked at it through the lens of variability. Now, how much does that stuff change? Mike, that's just, what I was trying to figure just, out. Just before you go on any further, give us a timeline here. When, is this 10, 15 years ago? Uh, it was about 12 years ago. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And what the, so people are like, well, how the hell did you end up with those two topics? Because they don't appear to be related at all. Because the PhD is normally, you know, super intense down one very, very small niche. So the formal title of my PhD was actually looking at uh, fine scale variations across physiologic systems, right? So HRV, heart rate variability says, okay, let's average is interesting, but if we look at these fine scale variations, and we do a variability analysis on it, not just an average, we can get, oh, markers for parasympathetic and sympathetic activation. We can get the next level down of information. So what if we put someone on, uh, we use a metabolic heart, right? So they're breathing into this tube. We look at the RER, so the respiratory exchange ratio. So each time they breathe into this machine for breath by breath, we'll get this percentage of how much they use fat and how much they use carbohydrate, which is the RER. But what if that number is not steady state? What if there's variability within that number? What if we put someone on a treadmill and have them go at steady state and people who have done a lot of metabolic heart testing will tell you, you get bored, so you start watching the numbers, right? You don't want everything to go awry and the test be crap. The RER starts fluctuating, it starts moving around. And initially I thought, no, no, that's just noise in the machine. That's just the machine. But what if it's not? What if that's physiologic information that we've just kind of cast aside and said, ah, we don't need it. So that's what I was looking at. Can we put someone on a, a treadmill or a bike? Can we have them do steady state exercise? Can we take the RER and do not an average, but a variability analysis? And will that variability analysis give us a marker for metabolic flexibility? hypothesis being the more that fluctuates these fine scale changes that that's actually someone who's very metabolically healthy if that RER never fluctuates so I crush that fine scale variability that may be a marker that your metabolic system is headed in the wrong direction and we can do that without putting you through a max test because a lot of populations and that type of thing you know there's there's modified versions of that test obviously but getting them up to a max is just probably too high risk for a lot of places, especially a fitness facility to do. So that was kind of the hypothesis that if this works, we could, you know, give the math done for you, go to like, you know, Lifetime Fitness and these big chains and be like, hey, we now have a submax test to uh, tell you metabolic health of your clients. So what is healthy metabolic flexibility? What does that look like? So metabolic flexibility is how well your body can use carbohydrates and how well it can use fat, right? Because in the fitness world, everybody wants to say, oh, oh, well, fat is super important, right? Oh, you don't need carbs, just you know, keto harder and you'll be fine. 
Oh, wait, what if I have a strength and power goal? Oh, yeah, yeah. Carbohydrates are super important now. Ah, fat metabolism, aerobic base, just burn carbs all the time. Your body can use carbs aerobically and anaerobically. Don't worry about it. Reality is it's probably both, right? How well can you use carbohydrates on one end, especially for high-end performance? But then again, how well can you burn fat, especially at rest, uh, resting metabolic rate, low-level intensity exercise? I would argue is a really good marker for your metabolic health. If you're just chewing through carbohydrates at rest, it's like leaving the turbo running on your car. It's like, yeah, you can do it, but my gut feeling is there's going to be a pretty high cost somewhere associated with that, and you don't need it, right? If you're just hanging out doing low-level intensity, you don't need to produce ATP at a massively high rate. You actually want the ability to use fat because it'll still meet the rate of ATP production, and it's a lot more dense, right? You can generate three times as much ATP with fat, but you can't do it at the same rate of carbohydrates. So metabolic flexibility is how well do you use carbs, how well do you use fat, and how well do you switch acutely back and forth between both of them. So the second that you're doing, say, a heavy squat, you're burning through a lot of carbs, maybe you're doing five by five, but even during that rest period, I would argue how far you can shift to downregulate into aerobic metabolism and use fat is probably a good marker for health and maybe a marker for acute performance so that you can then switch and use carbs again for the next time you're doing that exercise again. So you can go back and forth in a short period of time. So in a, in a pathological situation, are we seeing that people are they're less metabolically flexible? Are, are they generally burning more? sugar and carbohydrates and they're, they're struggling to tap into to, to fat at rest? Is that, is that typically what you're saying? Uh, you can. And that's where it gets tricky because anything on that spectrum can get hosed up, right? Mm -hmm. So historically, people are like, okay, let's take type 2 diabetics, right? A pathology. Ah, what is a type 2 diabetic? Oh, someone who doesn't use carbs very well. In general, I'd say yes, I would probably agree with that, right? We could look at baseline glucose. We could look at baseline levels of insulin. I did this on a study. I got farmed out to the epi department for a year and a half. Did this whole study looking at insulin and glucose and movement and all this stuff. We didn't find any results, so they said they weren't going to publish it, which I wanted to put my head through a wall after that. <laughs> um, but what I saw was some people had pretty good glucose. It was elevated, you know, like 110 or so. So it's high, but not super pathologically high. And then when I got the insulin data back, which took longer to run the ELISA, Oh my God, some people had a massively high amount of insulin and their blood glucose was like 105. It's high, but not in a, a very diseased state. For other people, it'd be 111 and their insulin was relatively low. So I'm like, oh, so the system is trying to regulate blood glucose and kind of sacrificing insulin levels in order to do it. So then, long term, what happens with the progression of the disease, right? Your body says, hey, High amounts of blood glucose is toxic. So we're going to try to avoid that at all costs. We're going to try to get blood glucose out of the system. We'll shove it into fat. We'll shove it in fat in the liver. We'll put it in glycogen. Just get it the hell out of the bloodstream. I don't really care so much about the downstream effects of that. And if I need more and more and more insulin to do it, fine. Because we know that if blood glucose gets super elevated, you're, at some point you're going to basically die. So your body's pretty good at controlling that. What happens, though, is you get a higher and higher level of baseline insulin, 
is it doesn't allow you to downshift into fat. So if I want to have you downshift into fat, I will actually lower your insulin. If I lower your insulin, I'll push you to use more fat as a fuel. But during the progression of a type 2 diabetic, they start losing this high-end carbohydrate metabolism. Their body's putting out more and more insulin. And again, it, it is more complicated than that with you know cortisol and glucagon and all that other stuff. But when the insulin is higher, now I can't downshift to use fat as much. So now the fat end of the spectrum gets crushed. And so I get squished from both ends of the spectrum. And what I find is that if I give you a carbohydrate challenge now, it takes you longer to upregulate to really start using those carbs as a fuel source. And even as the carbs in your body start going down, it takes you much longer to downshift back to using fat again by like quite a bit. So I've killed and crushed both ends of the spectrum and I've acutely changed how fast you can switch substrates. Outside of a laboratory setting, how can you assess someone's metabolic flexibility? So I know you, you spoke about the, yeah. the respiratory exchange ratio, but obviously, you know, you're going to need some equipment for that. Is there any way that coaches out there could be like, well, is, is there any sort of tests or assessment I can use with clients, you know, in the gym, in the facility that, that may give me some indication of how metabolically flexible they are? Yeah, so what I do for that is I do uh, fasting or what I call the Pop-Tart test. <laughs> so in the morning for breakfast, have uh, two Pop-Tarts and then record how you feel about every half hour after that for about two hours. Hmm. Right. So what am I doing? I'm taking a food that's basically super highly processed glucose, some type of NASA-grade ceramic polymer that doesn't even closely melt when you put them in the toaster. Like it's like survive an apocalypse and they're dirt cheap right? But massive amount of glucose. And if you end up like face down under your table 20 minutes later, I would argue you probably have some issue using a high amount of carbohydrates. Yeah. Now we can get fancy. You can do a glucometer. You can look at, you know, blood glucose excursions. You can do blood work and look at, you know, HbA1c, fasting glucose, glycomark, all sorts of stuff. But if you don't have any bloods or anything at all, it's probably a pretty good marker for that hard uh, right end of the spectrum. And then on the left end, the fat metabolism, what do I do? I'm going to push insulin as low as possible and see how you can downregulate to use fat. And if you can do a you know, 19 to 24 hour fast pretty easily, I would say you're probably pretty good at using fat as a fuel. So I think those two endpoints will kind of mark the hard endpoints on both sides. If you had to do a field test with no equipment. Uh, how, um, how fast can, can, you know, let's, uh, I suppose, I was about to say a healthy or normal, but like what the fuck is normal and what's healthy, I suppose, because every, every, <laughs> everything is a mean in, in science. But like you kind of touched on this a little bit when you were saying, you know, you could be squatting there using glycogen into glucose and then in your rest periods, could you, you know, you might switch back to fats in between. Like how, how, like, how acutely can somebody switch between both fuel sources if they're healthy, let's just say? Yeah, I would say relatively fast, which is pretty much a non-answer because I, it depends on uh, what you're doing, uh, depends on what you ate beforehand, uh, depends on your stress level, mm -hmm. and I would argue probably also depends on your aerobic base. Yeah. So if I have someone who's got a shitty aerobic base, they may not even switch at all. 
if I've got someone who's got a massive aerobic base to switch into aerobic metabolism, I would argue you'll probably see them downregulate and switch to fat faster. Mm. Um, an easier example to think of is heart rate. If I want a high heart rate, I'm going to be sympathetically driven. I want a lower heart rate, I want to be more parasympathetic. Even though they're like two dials, they're always, you know, yeah. you've got some of each. Dimmer switch. Dimmer switch, yep. Dimmer switch, not off and on. And I can look and use heart rate as kind of an proxy for the same idea. Mm, if you've got someone who's got a really well-developed aerobic base, you can do like the Caldeeds biometric method. Um, I want you to go, I want you to go pretty hard. And now I want you to recover. Don't go again to your heart rate is let's say hundred beats per minute. And then now go again. Someone who is really aerobically developed, that may be 20, 30, 40 seconds. Someone who is not, that may be two, three, four minutes and able to, for them to repeat uh, that effect again. Yeah. Yeah. I even just think to myself here, like, you know, so when you have like a lactic aerobic athletes, you know, so people who play yeah. like soccer, rugby, American football, you know, uh, most literature says like, you know, that the ATP and the phosphocreatine, they're, they're the type one fibers facilitate their, um, facilitate their resynthesis and you know so the aerobic system facilitates the resynthesis of the alactic system and that the type 1 fiber plays a role in that so that would make sense that if if you have somebody who has a good aerobic base that they would you know they, they'd be fairly they'd be a lot better in terms of metabolic flexibility what can we do though from a training perspective to improve metabolic flexibility and i suppose it's not just training but i suppose it's lifestyle with nutrition factors as well but uh, what what would you recommend if you meet somebody who's metaflux met, met metabolically oh, met, what am i saying here metabolically, metabolically, metabolically yeah i was, gonna say, I was actually uh, going to say when you meet someone who's metabolically stable which means basically that they're inflexible so how can yeah. we how can we take someone from being inflexible to flexible metabolically in terms of interventions with training and nutrition lifestyle yeah there's a whole bunch uh the big one that everyone will talk about now although i don't know if the intervention is as useful would be sleep uh, a study done in University of Illinois showed that they took people and they cut their sleep, I think, to only four or five hours a night for, I want to say, six or seven days. And they took healthy individuals and made them borderline type 2 diabetics by the end of the study. Do you think uh, that's because they're shortening the fast of the sleep? Do you think that's one factor? Uh, possibly. I think it just may be the effect of sleep on the body's ability to regulate glucose also. Because yeah. think about what's going on, right? If we go to super high level. If I sleep deprive you, I'm making you more stressed. Mm. If I make you more stressed, you're probably going to try to use more glucose because that's how you're wired, yeah. right? If we make you more stressed, you're going to switch to use more glucose and away from fat. That's oversimplification. I know there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on beyond that. So, mm -hmm. well, I've uh, heard that. I've heard that lots, lots, and lots of times from different individuals that when you have sleep deprivation that you're like there was that i remember rob wolf saying like after one night it was yeah. a pre-diabetic levels I, I, yes. like, I know in matthew walker's book it was more i think it was after like four nights of inadequate sleep he was like they basically had the 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 blood like a lipid panel of someone who was diabetic yeah yeah there's both uh i can't remember like i have it in the cert but the one study that showed you can detect it after one night of very bad sleep wow um, we also know on the other end of the spectrum that a uh, very cool study was done and they said, okay, let's sleep eight hours. And in one group, we're going to fracture your sleep. So every hour, this little alarm clock is going to go off and you have to hit a button to say you're awake. Now people won't remember that, right? But every hour you're going to wake up. Other group, just sleep all the way through the night. 
Mm. And the group where they fractured their sleep, their body's ability to downregulate and use fat was impaired by like 50%, meaning that they were not able to use fat very well at all compared to the other group that just let them sleep through the whole night. So that's why having kids makes you fat. Doesn't help. <laughs> the baby crying every hour and you get. Oh, up. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, the downside is like if you want to change someone's sleep habit, you're actually getting into more of a, a value structure on their life, mm. right? Because how many people are going to be like, hey, hey, bro, just go sleep two hours a night more and we'll, a lot of your issues will be fixed. It probably might be true. The reality is that's not very actionable for the average person to do. So is it useful? Yes. Is it super actionable? I think it's a long-term thing people need to, to work on. Okay, so that's the first, that's the first uh, strategy you're giving us, so sleep. Yep, so sleep. Um, I'm a big fan of kind of more periodized nutrition. So if you've never really done any fasting at all, I think to make you better able to use fat and just kind of more of a resilient human being and harder to kill, having some type of fasting I think is going to be useful. Now, what, what contraindications would you have in place in that? Uh, or, exactly. Uh, yeah. The caveat is if, if you are super stressed out and sleep deprived, fasting is probably only going to add to your stress, right? So if someone is very stressed, I'll use like heart rate variability. I don't really want to add another stressor in the terms of a fast. So for example, I had a, a client who's like, I want to do intermittent fasting. I'm like, okay, let's look at your nutrition log. So you added boxing to your training. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. But anyway, um, and she added more and more training. Her training was, was good, but her caloric intake on the weekends was extremely low, like under 1,000 calories, like 70 grams of protein. Ooh. I'm like, you need to eat more, and you need to get your protein up a lot higher for many weeks in a row, and maybe we'll talk about fasting at that point. I can't physically add any more stressors to your system because it's not going to go well. You, you've got plenty of stressors that you're already working on. Um, however, if you have someone who's sleeping well, nutrition's pretty good, their protein intake is good, their caloric intake is appropriate, I'd say take a, you know, one day a week and slowly over the period of six to eight weeks, work them up to a 19 to 24 hour fast. Uh, do that once a week for probably another six to eight week period. And then eh, maybe only do that once a month then. You know, I found if I do one long fast about once every three weeks, I can still kind of maintain that ability to do it even though I'm not doing it all the time. Right? If you get your deadlift to 400 and you're there for quite a while, like several years, you probably don't need to deadlift all that often to maintain it, right? You need to do some, but it's probably not twice a week, right? It's probably not a super high frequency to maintain that capacity. Mm. Um, so I would say fasting can be helpful if you're not super stressed out. Um, obviously training, so training you can get into uh, Insulin-mediated uptake and non-insulin-mediated uptake. So if you just have contracting muscle without insulin, it can actually pull glucose right out of the bloodstream. So looking at higher levels of NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis, going for a walk, move around. You know, for fitness people listening, for God's sake, do something recreational, like learn a new skill, go play tennis, go kiteboard, learn to surf. Just, I know you love training, and I love training too, and it's awesome, but. There's you know, a few other things you could probably learn in your life too. <laughs> um, just go move, like do new movements uh, is helpful. And then obviously training, right? If Even if you have a high amount of carbohydrates before training, you're going to still be able to use carbohydrates. 
if you're super sensitive to that, I would have you again do that test at breakfast. And if that's okay, and you still think you're kind of sensitive, introduce them initially after training. Why? Because you just had a massive amount of muscle movement. GLUT4 is going to be upregulated. Uh, all your counter-regulatory hormones are going to be high, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol. So you're probably going to handle it pretty good at that point and then slowly kind of move it into your training. So maybe about halfway through, and grant, as long as you don't become symptomatic, right? So you're training your body to get a little bit better at using carbohydrates at that point. Um, so those are kind of be a couple I would, I would look at playing around with. Cool. So we have sleep and fasting and training, and then with with the fasting, you you gave your sort of prerequisites. Um, in terms of performance now with athletes, how can we strategically use some strategies to get the most benefit from being metabolically flexible? So I know on Danny's podcast, you spoke a little bit about uh, pyruvate uh, pyruvate uh, dehydrogenase, and you were right. talking about uh, that when the athletes did a fast or the participants did a fast, they were better able then to tap into the glycogen source for their performance. Can you maybe touch on that? Yeah. So they're better able to do glycogen the next day. Yeah. So what a lot of people, not necessarily maybe your listeners, but in fitness, everyone's like, Oh, metabolic flexibility. This is great. This is our new term. We love it. Yay. I'm like, yeah, it's not new. It's been around forever. But anyway, like, but we need to do keto. We're going to do keto to become more metabolically flexible. I'm like, but you got like half of the idea right, right? Most people probably would do better to upregulate the use of fat. The downside, if you do like a ketogenic approach, is you have to, by definition, have a very period of time where your carbohydrates are very low, proteins low to moderate, and fat is very high. And yes, you will upregulate the use of fat as a fuel. If you said, my goal is to run an aerobic base for like six weeks and I'll force them into do keto, okay, that might be okay. The first question I would ask is how much time do you have after that? If you've got another six to eight weeks to transition them back to using carbohydrates, okay, you, you might be okay. But if you're like, nope, the second they're done with that, I need them to be doing speed and power like immediately. The issue you're going to have is when we do high fat, low carb, the enzyme PDH, which is pyruvate dehydrogenase, it's kind of like the gatekeeper to glycolysis. And Trent Stellingwolf has done a bunch of work on this. And what they did initially was they said, okay, uh, marathon running, our assumption is that's a lot of fat use. We're going to upregulate fat and we're going to create freaks who run a marathon. Woohoo! And they do the studies in the 80s. What did they find? Nope, no one ran any faster. So we're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Oh, oh, wow, running a marathon, they actually use a lot of carbohydrates. So let's give them a boatload of carbohydrates before their next race. So we'll do this eight-week kind of ketogenic-y kind of phase. We'll take two, three days. We'll carb load the piss out of these guys. Boom, we're going to create freaks. They're going to you know, destroy the new record. What do they find? Nope, didn't happen. They're like, oh, man, maybe we didn't give them enough carbohydrates. Let's do a muscle biopsy. Let's, let's make sure that they have more than enough carbohydrates. Do that no difference. Like, wait a minute, what's going on? So when they tested them for speed and power, their speed and power was actually down. Why? They had full glycogen stores, both liver and muscle. But what happened was they had an access issue. They lost part of that high-end carbohydrate metabolism 
to access it at the highest rate. Like Peter Atia would say that, imagine you've got a gasoline tanker truck that's pulled over on the side of the road because it ran out of gas. It's not that there's no gas there, it's just that the tank that it's hooked to is smaller and there is no line that accesses the gas that it's transporting. And so now what we know is that, you know, most of marathon running is almost entirely carbohydrate metabolism. A half marathon, I think they use nicotinamide acid to block fat use, and they saw no change in performance. So it's almost entirely carbohydrate use from a performance standpoint. So I think we have to be careful of the transitions that we're doing and a way around that because some athletes will say, okay, I'm doing CrossFit or I'm doing Strongman or I'm doing American football or something where I want a little bit more aerobic base. I want a bigger engine, but I'm still training speed and power. And I've only got like, let's say an off season of like two months to do it. I would set them up with some type of day that's fasting. And then the rest of it is this higher carbohydrate. So I would take a period of time and say, okay, all things being equal, Monday is a fasting day. So you're going to do a fast for maybe 19 to 24 hours. We'll take a few weeks to get you used to that. You're just going to do a low to moderate aerobic based building fasted. What am I doing? I'm pushing insulin low, increasing the body's ability to use fat, but I'm keeping the intensity low enough where fat should be the main fuel. I'm not that super concerned about performance. I want the adaptation. And because it's fasting, I can come back Tuesday the next day, give you 300 grams of carbohydrates, have you do a strength and power session, and you'll still be okay because that PDH enzyme doesn't change in that period of time. Now, that may be because that was only a 24-hour period compared to six to eight weeks if I did a keto block. That may be because muscle glycogen levels don't change a whole lot unless I'm doing a lot of muscular work that's specifically targeting them. So if you fast for 48 hours and you just kind of go through your day and don't exercise hard, your muscle glycogen levels don't really go down that much. Your liver glycogen will go down, but muscle is only really tapped by the amount of work that's done on it. So that gives me a way to quantify aerobic adaptation and then speed and power without really compromising my performance. I remember hearing that people who are on like a long-term ketogenic diet that when they like started to reintroduce like a reasonable amount of carbohydrates they actually had the response of a diabetic yes because of you know the enzymes involved in you know the pathways to to uh to use uh carbohydrates as a fuel source they basically like they down regulated so much so that's probably what you're seeing in the case of you know someone being on it six weeks because it's kind of like uh like, you know, the, you, you don't use it, you lose it principle. So basically, it's like a training residual. I mean, if you don't train a certain physical capacity, it is going to detrain. And all physical capacities have individual lifelines in terms yeah. of the, the residual effects. So that's probably what you were seeing there with uh, the pyruvate uh, dehydrogenase. But what about in, now you kind of touched on it there, what about in more acute situations? Um, I have heard, and it was actually from Danny, I heard this initially, but that, some and it was with some soccer teams in football as we say over here in ireland and yes uh the real football not hand egg hand yeah egg, hand <laughs> is what you guys play um but uh, i heard that some um football teams in england they utilize this sort of undulating strategy during the week where you know it's it's like uh they'll train low compete high type thing 
Right. So if they're doing more of a tactical low intensity session, they'll get they'll purposely have the guys basically have a you know higher fat, lower carbohydrate, you know, proteins usually all stable type day. And I think um, now again, I'm only just remembering this off the top of my mind, so I don't know the full details. But apparently, the whole idea was that this could help um, potentially increase like with mito- mitochondria biogenesis. Um, and so then that when coming into the game that week and they recarb loaded, that basically it would just make the Krebs like more efficient, then you know. So, I, have you heard much on that? Like, so the sort of undulating model of like you know, higher fat, low carb day, so basically train low in terms of carbs and then compete high when you kind of you know, recarb load in this more sort of micro cycle of a week, so it's more transient. So, again, you're probably not going to see any detriments to any enzymes on a fat fuel fueling source or carbohydrate fueling source like you did with a long term six week study. So, do you know much about that way? Yeah, so I'll answer that in a real quick part you had on the uh, keto post thing. Oh, yeah, sorry. Because you end up uh, having a non-pathological insulin resistance at the muscle level, Yeah. which in English means that your muscle, when you're doing a ketogenic type diet, actually does become more resistant to glucose. But it's not a pathological resistance. Yeah. Why is that? Because you've got a low amount of glucose and you want to spare it for the brain. If you allow the muscle to uptake a lot of it, the brain goes, hey, where's all my glucose? Yeah, I'm using some ketones, but I like glucose too. Mm. If you make the muscle more insulin resistant, it'll actually spare system-wide more glucose for the brain. So I've worked with some people like post-ketogenic who've got just crazy glucose responses, probably because that's happened. So if you go really hard transition on that, uh, I've seen like crazy blood glucose and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Um, in terms of the microcycle, I've heard of teams doing that. I've seen less research on that pattern per se. Mm. There is some research on if you pull that out into more like a block configuration. Um, so the main study on that was probably Marquette a couple of years ago at MedSci. They took very high level trained, I think it was cyclists, so pretty high VO2 max. And in short, what they did is they did the Let's deplete them of glycogen and let's just kind of train them hard. Yeah, right? yeah. So if you think about what's going on, right? So in the morning, if I'm fasted, my liver glycogen is low. So I could do a strength and power session on the low liver glycogen. Maybe I see some beneficial adaptations with that. I could do a, uh, an exhaustion type session where I'm doing like multiple wind gates or something that's just really, really heinous to drop muscle glycogen. Now I can have them sleep low, meaning maybe I just give you a little bit of protein, no carbohydrates, and now we come back the next day and we train some speed and power. Even though your muscle glycogen is low and your liver glycogen is low. And what do we see from that? We do see much higher levels of adaptation. We also see massive influence on your immune system, massive influence on your heart rate variability. It is an absolute massive stressor. And your performance acutely will go down. So in the Marquette study, they kind of did that with the two groups where they kind of timed their carbohydrates to do that. And in that study, they saw, you know, by DEXA, they lost like 1% body comp at the same macronutrients, at the same calories. Uh, Run times went up. And then generally, they got better with only a three-week intervention. Now, other studies tried to replicate that, and they haven't. So the studies are like probably split 50-50 on that. 
So what I generally tell coaches is that if you want to run some model like that, I view that as a, a distress model. I'm going to stress the piss out of these people. And my goal is to get the adaptation I want. And I'm not acutely worried about performance, right? Just like a, a super compensation, right? I'm going to just keep pushing volume on you till you hate me. And then I'm going to run your taper and hopefully you get better. It's the same idea. But you want to do that in the off season, in my opinion. And then you want to test to see, did you get the adaptations you want? In season, it gets a lot trickier because you don't have the chance to push as big of an adaptation because you're going to come back and performance is a key metric that you're working on. So I think, like you said, you can do a similar thing. It might be useful. It might be a way to maintain some of the adaptations that you have. I don't think you're going to see a massive increase in adaptations. And it probably varies a lot depending on the athletes you're working with. If you've got athletes that are super dialed into everything, yeah. you can probably get away with it. If you've got most athletes who underfuel and don't even know what a vegetable and a protein is, good luck. <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. Because uh, in, in my mind, like when, you know, when I hear that, oh, we just, we train low for a day or two and then we, we go high carb. I'm like, my, my first sort of thought is I was like, is that really enough time to get an adaptation? That sort of, right. what, what kind of rings in my head there is, you know, the, the whole, like, uh, when people diet and then they go that high carb, high calorie day and it, it you know, your thyroid goes up and leptin goes up and you're going to be in this, you're going to yeah. burn excess calories for the following like seven months after this one refeed. But, uh, but no, what you said there made sense in that, you know, you probably want to do like a longer term block, and then use maybe maybe use like a microcycle like we spoke about as more sort of to maintain the residual effect of that. Again, very similar to physical, yeah. you know, training the physical capacity. So that makes a lot more sense. It's the same idea. Yeah. Right? To me, it's like I'm just going to take nutrition to try to push the adaptation a little harder yeah. that I want. Yeah. Right. We do it all the time with training. Yeah, absolutely. So it, and people look at you like you're just some weird nut job. It's no different with like, nutrition. Yeah, I say it, it all the it's time. It's no yeah. different, right? Yeah. We, We've got the physiology to explain it. What we don't know is, is it uh, extremely beneficial or not? I think it's probably beneficial. Do we have a ton of studies to quote unquote prove that? Not yet, yeah. but at least it, it makes physiologic sense. And the adaptation response, we know we get. That's pretty solid right now. James Wharton's thrown a bunch of that stuff. I keep far. What we don't know is do those adaptations really translate into the performance we want? Mm. Yeah, that's still kind of up in the air right now yeah i think we don't really appreciate like like what underpins training and nutrition and all life it's all just a game of stress physiology and and yeah. and, and, and the management of energy resources <laughs> like so what, what what i mean by that too is that uh like say for instance like the law of accommodation like if i say here mike you're going to do the same training every day for the rest of your life you'd be like yeah that kind of violates variation it's like why do you eat the same fucking food every day yeah and it's just like yeah, because like we're, that has to have variation like the amount of times even in my own training where like you're like geez you know training's going well progress is well and it's just like you change something in your nutrition like you know and it's just like i feel so much better and it's yeah. just like you just there was an accommodation there was a stagnation there and nutrition like can be one of the one of the con confounding variables there yeah. and even beyond that not to just confuse the piss out of people you'll find in every time i think i know and understand a principle i'll find someone who kind of sort of appears to violate it mm. right so i went to a seminar one of the guys who worked under bonderchuk for years 
And he showed me their program for elite hammer throwers. Like, I mean, obviously the guy's won more medals than anyone else for hammer throwing. He's been very successful. I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, the block of training week to week for like four to six weeks is identical. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's the strength training though. The, 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 the trolls, exactly. yeah, the strength training stays the same. He flat loads it. So I, I know Derek, yeah. I know Derek Ebley very, very well, sure. Yeah. But, um, his course is savage. He did it. He brought a bonnet course there, but uh, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't wave load any of the strength training. Right. Too. But um, but that makes but, sense with the goal he's trying to achieve because the performance part is changing, and if he's changing two variables all the time, he doesn't know what the hell. No, what's on. going on? But the other thing, <laughs> the other thing is too is that there is variability because like you are variable. Right. Your your energy levels are different. Your moods different. Your mindset's different. So there's always inbuilt variability to a certain degree. But yeah, he's he's clever. He was very clever with that in terms of the um, you know the the strength train aspect. Because again, like a lot of us got into this profession purely through the strength aspect. So like we we all have this bias of like just strength training, and it's all like hold on, hold on. If if you are not if you are not a powerlifter or an Olympic lifter. All the strength work is just supplementary. That's all it is. The number yeah. one goal is the, com- is the competitive movement. And that's why Bonnetruck's pyramid of exercise classification is phenomenal. Like, so you've got competitive exercise on top. What's yep. important to that then is special developmental exercises. Underneath that is special preparatory exercises, which is where most weight room stuff goes. And then you've got general preparatory exercises. And it's just like the more we can keep that in mind that, listen, what we do in a weight room, if you, if you are an athlete that's not a powerlifter and not a weightlifter, uh, what you do in the weight room is purely just supplementary. So it's trying to get away, trying to get stuff. Yeah, well, Bonnetrock's model is very, very interesting. And Derek uh, does a good job there. Listen, I don't have you for much longer. I've literally 11 minutes yeah. in the clock here. Um, and I have a few more questions here for you. Sure. Just, uh, HRV and metabolic flexibility. People who are more metabolically fle- flexible, do they tend to have better HRVs? My gut feeling is yes. So you have there, I, is, there is no literature actually on that, or no one's looked into it, have they? None. <laughs> uh, I thought your PhD yeah, might have looked into some of that. Yeah, I would love for that study to be done, and I tried to get at it when I did an intervention study with Monster Energy Drink, but we just did an acute intervention, so I don't have any long-term training data to associate that with. Um, but we do know anecdotally that. If you have a higher level of aerobic base, your HRV generally tends to be higher. Mm. Um, we do know that for training, that's probably going to be a, a benefit. So we have some anecdotal research that points at that a little bit, but not a lot of direct research. And the big bugger is that HRV is very different from one person to the next. Yeah. To get at it, you'd probably have to run some type of intervention study to see a difference and to see how they correlate over time disease versus health so you sort of touched a little bit on this on the podcast with danny is there a difference in the metabolic flexibility of a diseased tissue versus a healthy tissue like so cancer cancer versus like healthy tissue yeah we every tissue that we've looked at i would argue we've seen it now does that mean we always have the best intervention? Probably not. Right? And I'm not a cancer researcher at all. But we know that some cancers, you can exploit the metabolic flexibility of the body and target the fuel that the cancer can't use very well. Don't they, now, fa- again, they fast, they fast before Don't they yeah. fast before some from chemotherapies to, to do that so that more of the chemo goes to the tumor? 
Right. So think about this, right? If you have a cancer that's very glycolytic, which again, is not all cancers, mm. but let's say it is, that cancer needs carbohydrates to run its metabolic machinery. What if I take your body and I shove you into a very long fast and I'm trying to push your body to use all fat? I'm trying to take glucose and drop it as low as possible. What am I doing? I'm trying to stress the piss out of that cancer and I'm trying to remove its fuel source because your body can switch to a different fuel. Now, if I target with chemo or something else, hopefully it's in more of a reduced state that makes it a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah. Very good. What about even just differences among, you know, organs? So like, is there a difference in the metabolic flexibility of like the heart versus the liver versus the brain versus skeletal muscle? Have you seen any patterns in that? Uh, yes, there is. So there's a lot, there's like been three very cool reviews on cardiac metabolic flexibility recently. And it's pretty fascinating. Like four years ago, I went to a talk where this lady was explaining how the heart was shifting its fuel sources and how that was a benefit. And I'm like, no, that's like getting close to, you know, cardiac dysfunction in my opinion, right? If you had the option of using like five fuels or one, for survival, what's going to be better? Five, right? Five, five, Cardiac five, tissue yeah. can pull lactate, pyruvate, ketones, yeah, yeah, yeah. fat, carbs. To and gene? it has to, to gene? right? Because everything is, come, is literally just flying by, like just in time manufactured. The cardiac tissue has to pull it out immediately. It cannot suffer any downturn in that fuel that's being applied. So it makes sense that it has to be able to burn all sorts of fuels directly. And once those fuels start going offline, we now have very good data to show that you're not going down the right path. Now, the body can do that because that's how survival-based it is. You can start having those fuels drop off, and you can still do okay, but there's a cost to that. You get other byproducts. You get other sort of metabolic things that start going awry. Mm. Um, the brain is probably metabolically inflexible more than other tissues. Uh, it can use ketones, it can use carbs, fat, and eh, not so much, but it has the benefit of controlling all the rest of the body. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense with that. Where muscle is pretty metabolically flexible, it can pull lactate, it can pull fat, it can pull ketones, it can, you know, kind of do all of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been reading a good bit of exercise phase at the moment, just reading all the uh, McCarl catch catch, and just yeah. you know, when I was reading about the heart, it was just like, like the amount of fuel sources it can use is just immense. Like it's just like, it, and it's, it's really good at using lactate when lactate's around. I was just like, you know, for years people were like, lactate's, uh, lactate's a load of bollocks. They're like, Jay, sell that to the heart, man. But uh, listen, uh, I have three more. It's a beautiful fuel, right? Oh, it's High be energy. Beautiful if fuel, you yeah. lactate independently of hydrogen ions, I yeah. would argue that for performance, that's probably the best fuel you can get from a bioenergetic standpoint. Back into that cardio cycle, baby. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, listen, uh, real quick before you go here, uh, give us your top and current book recommendations. So what's your number one book, yeah. you give, number one book you give away and uh, what are you currently reading, if you are reading anything? Yeah, number one book I give away is probably anything from Stephen Pressfield. Do the Work, mm. probably my favorite. Uh, Turning Pro is pretty good too. It's, it's the same message all the time, which is, again is not a negative. Like literally, like I have that book under my bookshelf and if I get just stuck, I just pick it up and open to one page and I read like two or three pages and I'm like, oh yeah, that's uh, all going to be okay. I just yeah. probably need to either change tack or do something different. It's, this is life. This is the way it goes. So I've only yeah. ever read the war. I've only ever read the war of art poem when I love that book. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, I guess books I'm reading right now, uh, I'm almost done with The Oxygen Advantage by Patrick McEwen. He's, so, from, Gal- he's from Galway in Ireland, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good Irish fellow. <laughs> yeah. um, I really like it. it. I mean, you could you could pick it apart and say, yeah, you know, some of it's anecdotal, some of it's, you know, based on old school, you know, Bottega research and that kind of stuff. But I found from a, a practical sense, since I've been, I've been forcing myself to go very slow through it and try to implement each stage, uh, appears to work very well. So mm-hmm. I've been pretty impressed with the outcomes uh, from that. So, Is RPR not very anecdotal as well? Just a complete digression there. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's one study that looked at RPR effects on FMS, which is presented as an abstract for a poster. Um, there's a couple other studies that are kind of begun. Um, I talked to a buddy of mine at the Kerrig Institute who's good friends with Cal and I kind of put a bug in his ear that we're trying to get more research on it. So hopefully we will. I mean, I've got anecdotal data of HRV change, performance change, vertical Mm -hmm. jump. Cal's got a bunch of anecdotal data, you know, in that nature before and after. It's a pretty crazy stuff. And, you know, the first time when I started doing it, I was like, eh, I've done a bunch of hands-on stuff before and I don't like a lot of it. None of it really holds. None of it sticks. You know, get up, walk around the massage table, lay back down. Most of my testing would just absolutely go away. And Cal's like, no, no, this sticks. Like I've, I've loaded guys up with like heavy weights and it's like been good. I have Omega wave people. And I'm like, I don't know, man. So I'm like, I'll do it and see what I find. And I don't know, man. It, it's, it seems to stick before loading and loading feels different too. But yeah, but if you walk back in the if you walk back in the next day, they'll have to do it all again. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So some people it'll hold really well. Like I had one guy two years ago. We did some psoas work on him. He was a crosser competitor, and like rope climbs, legless rope climbs. The psoas was just trash. Yeah. So we do some stuff on him. Everything's good. Didn't see him for like six months. You know, gave him the drills to do. And I asked him. I said, "Hey, how's it going?" He's like, "Oh, good." I said, how's your, uh, your psoas doing? He's like, oh, great. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, see, like the little RPR drills I gave you to do. He's like, what drills? I haven't done any of them. But <laughs> yeah, he still held. Listen, I, I, I could, yeah, so I, I, I'll have you back on. We can speak more about it. Because I know it's around the Chapman points and stuff, and I've done some of the Chapman stuff. Exactly. I want to ask you this one before you go. Uh, well, I have two quick ones, if you can make them quick. Yeah. 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 You have one year left on planet Earth, for whatever reason. How would you spend that year and why? Oh, I would probably do just a lot of what I'm doing now. Um, you know, I would probably take a little bit more time off and just completely throw my computer in the corner and not look at a computer or a phone for probably a week or longer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm working on that, working on expanding that out, but just trying to figure out how to do that with, you know, clients and that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, But other than that, I, I'm pretty fortunate. I probably wouldn't change a lot. I mean, probably kiteboard a little bit more, probably sleep a little more, train a little more. But I would say, oh, my wife says I would spend more time with her, which I would agree. Heard her, heard her, uh, heard her say that. But I have to, I have to. Yeah, nothing. But I would say nothing in terms of massive deviations. Those would all be just kind of small tweaks. So. All right, we're going for dinner, and uh, your your wife is already invited, so she, you can't. Oh, have, nice. You can't okay. have you can't have her as one of your guests here, but. You can invite five people to this dinner, dead or alive. Who would you bring to this dinner and why? Ooh. Um, I thought a little bit about this. So the <laughs> list I came up with was, let's see, my wife's already there, so that's good. 
So I came up with uh, Jesus, Ben Franklin, Henry Rollins, Elon Musk, and Joe Rogan. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and the reason for that is I think it would just be a super interesting discussion from you know multiple viewpoints, and obviously I'd have a ton of questions for all of those people. And then I, wonder I would what like to have Rogan. I wonder what Jesus will be really like there. Like, or would he would he always just come out with like these like Zen coins where he just like I don't know. You know, or would he be like and like like how would he speak to as well? You know, like, my he, guess, and this is purely a guess because I mean, who knows? Is that I think he might be the quietest person there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He'd just be like, yeah, it's it's all cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, we're good. <laughs> I, could, I, I, I could just see like he's there eating and like it, it's just all, fine. all everyone else is just like looking at him and then he kind of look back and we'd all just like shuffle and look away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we'd probably keep finding ourselves in it. Oh, I can't believe he's actually here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I also had Joe Rogan on there because I'm a pretty big introvert in that way. If I don't have to do anything, he can just ask questions and I can just sit there and listen. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's fucking, I, I actually really, a lot of people like, they're they're not like huge fans. But I really like him. I I think he's a good yeah. interviewer. He's got great sense of humor. I I really enjoy listening to him. Listen, that's a savage uh, list. I I had a feeling that you knew it was because you listened to my podcast. Where sort of people, yeah, know. yeah. So that's great. Listen, I'm gonna get you back on because I do I do a few other questions around sure. other topics and. Uh, you know, you're a top-class human being, and I like speaking top-class human beings. Thank you. But, Mike, where can more people find out about you? Tell us about your certification, too, that you have going on, and any other projects coming up that you haven't mentioned so far. Yeah, so we've got the Human Performance Program, which is just through the Kerrig Institute. So you can go to Kerrig Institute and be able to find that. I'll link that up. Uh, the Flex Diet Cert is just at flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And that's briefly more on the nutrition recovery side. I took eight interventions, kind of ranked them and go through the big picture as it relates to metabolic flexibility, flexible dieting, and then do like a one hour theory of each one. So I try to take everything a trainer would need to know at a pretty high level about protein, condense that into one hour. Everything they need to know about fasting based on the research, condense that into one hour. And then each one of those has five interventions. So five interventions for protein, five interventions for fasting, all the way through the interventions. Mm -hmm. So you've got the big picture view. You've got the theory from kind of more of a research standpoint with all the references. And then you've got the specific action items that you would do with the particular client. And then we've got expert interviews from like, you know, Stu Phillips, Joey Antonio, Dr. Wow. Helms, uh, a bunch of those guys, uh, Dan Party throughout the world. They're, the they're seriously legit people. Yeah, and that's what I wanted because a lot, I, you know, short version is I, I resisted doing a certification for probably three years because I hate most certifications. I think they're a joke. I don't think they're worth the money people pay for them. And I didn't want to do that. And I ended up doing it because I'm like, I want like legit people in it who will cross check me. I want actual references. I want a system that people can actually apply. I want the theory. I want the application. And I realized that the sad reality for better or worse is most trainers will spend money on a certification. They won't necessarily spend money on continuing ed. Mm -hmm. And I found that if that's the way I need to get in front of them to get something more useful, to make it practical for themselves and clients, then I'm okay with that, I guess. So that was kind of sort of the concession I kind of had to make with that. Finally, what does the T stand for? Uh, it's actually Tiger. No, it's actually Thomas. <laughs> you fucker. I was actually... You know, <laughs> He's like, 
Yeah, I was really going to say, are you serious? That's gas. Yeah. Uh, Thomas, Mike, Thomas Nelson, MT. It's fucking yeah. And there's too many Dr. Mikes in the fitness industry, so it gets confusing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Mike, Savage Podcast, Savage. I really appreciate your time. Uh, just wrap up here and I will say goodbye to offline. So to all the listeners, thank you for your earbuds. You're spoiled with this information. Spoiled rotten, as my mother would say. But uh, until next time, everyone, take care, be well, and stay strong. Stay strong.